You're listening to In Country, a podcast covering Marvel Comics, The Nom. There's something happening here, but what it is ain't exactly clear. There's a man with a gun over there. Hello and welcome to episode 16 of In Country, a podcast covering Marvel Comics The Nom. I'm your host, Tom Panneries, and this episode is a special crossover between myself and the Quarter Bin Podcast. This episode, I will be talking about the Nom number 15, and Professor Allen's latest episode will also cover the Nom number 15. So if you'd like two separate takes on the same comic, listen to the rest of the episode here. And then over, head over to the Relatively Geeky Network of Podcasts and listen to the latest episode of the Quarterbin Podcast. Before I get to, into my look at number, the nom number 15, I do have one small piece of feedback from Scott Davis. He points out, Hi, Tom. I'm just catching up on ep 8 of the nom. Take another look at page number 1 when you get the chance. Albergo actually shoots a snake hanging from the tree, not a VC soldier, which is about to ta- attack Ed. The next page shows it hanging dead from the tree. Very cool. Thanks for this feedback and correction, Scott. And I did go back and look at it, and it's a really cool moment, and I honestly did not catch that the first time around. I can't believe I missed it. Um, So thank you very much. And it makes a lot more sense now, I think, in the context of what I was describing in, in Episode 8. If you want to send me some feedback, I obviously welcome it. And while it may wind up being several episodes behind, I have been doing my best to respond to everyone who sends email or other feedback my way. So the nom number 15 is titled Notes from the World, and it came out on October 27, 1987. It had a February 1988 cover date, according to Mike's Amazing World. The cover is by John Beatty. It shows Ed Marks in line at an airport in uniform. He's holding a bag. Behind him stands an annoyed-looking mom and a kid eating an ice cream cone. The ice cream cone is dripping onto Ed's uh, rucksack there. In front of Ed stands a rotund woman wearing a peace symbol and a necklace turning to uh, Ed with an annoyed expression on her face and clearly berating him for something. The credits inside the comic are as follows. Doug Murray's story, Wayne Van Zant breakdowns, Jeff Isherwood finishes, Augustin Moss letters, Phil Felix colors, Pat Redding, managing editor, Larry Hama, consulting editor, Tom DeFalco, editor-in-chief, Michael Rockwitz, assistant editor, Michael Higgins, editor. Following our real-time story structure, this issue will take place in April 1967. The song for this episode, For What It's Worth, by Buffalo Springfield, was the number seven song in the country on April 1st, 1967. This was its peak position on the charts and was written by Stephen Stills about the growing counterculture and protest movement of 1966 and 1967, especially out in California where Stills was living. Considering the topic of the issue's story, it's more than appropriate. It's April 67 and the mortar attack is the 23rd Infantry on Red Alert. Rob and Clark sit in a bunker that is getting shelled. Sarge sneaks up on them and delivers some mail. One in particular piece of mail is a letter to Rob from Ed Marks. Clark asks if Ed's a friend of Rob's. Rob says, yeah, he's a nice kid. I wasn't sure he'd make it. Let's see what he's got to say. The letter takes up just about the entire rest of the issue, and it is caption boxes over pictures, so there's no real dialogue. So what I'm going to go ahead and do is, uh, much like I did with the backup story in 
issue 8, I'm going to just go ahead and read this letter verbatim. Dear Rob and all the rest of you guys, I'm writing this from my room in Fort Jackson. Believe it or not, they made me a drill instructor. Imagine me pushing troops. But I guess they had to get me doing something. It's the wrong time for any kind of early out. The trip home was better than I expected. I guess all that flying in chapters was good for me. Still, I was surprised at the welcome when I flew into McCord. I mean, there was nothing. Nobody at all. And then they herded us into this reception building, took our gear, and dumped it all over the place. I guess they were looking for drugs or something, and some of the guys coming in must have had some. But still, there must have been a better way to check. Finally, though, they squared away my orders and gave me my back pay and travel money, and I got to go home on leave and see my folks. It was great to be home, but still something was not right. I saw it on the TV. There were college students in Wisconsin trying to do, I don't know what, something about a representative for Dow Chemicals and them trying to stop Dow from making napalm. Napalm? How many times did a napalm drop save our butts? Even my folks didn't seem to understand. My dad tried to explain to me why everyone thought the war was wrong, but I guess I just wasn't ready to listen. The next couple of days I looked at my old friends, but either they had changed or I had. Then I decided to go see my old girlfriend. The less said about that fiasco, the better. Over the next couple of days, I watched a lot of TV. You wouldn't believe what kind of stuff they show about the Nam. They had some report on about Charlie shelling some Marines at Da Nang. You'd think that the whole Corps was wiped out. And they showed some yacht, the Phoenix, taking supplies to Charlie, and they were smiling about it. Finally, it was time for me to go back. I reported to the first shirt at 1612, my u- new unit at Jackson. It was a little different than my first look at top back in country. I was introduced to the DI I'd be working with a Sergeant Oshchi, and he introduced me to the rest of the cadre. Seems the new troops were due the top of the week. Some of the other cadre members also spent time in country, and some of them are having problem, some problems adjusting. Still, life goes on, and the new troops were on their way. Cripes, those troops were young. I tried my best to get them ready. Tried to teach them all the things that you and Sergeant Poclo and Mike taught me. But the whole country seems to be going crazy. Still, life goes on. Let me tell you about a troop named Lewin. I don't know how Lewin ever got into the army. But now that he was in, we were supposed to make him into a functioning soldier, if that was possible. We managed to get him into the fourth week to the rifle range. But I didn't think we had a chance to get him to pass. Sergeant Oshji was determined to try, though. After about 50 misses, Sergeant Oshji told Lewin to put the safety on his rifle. That was his first mistake. Then Oshji walked down the range and started to straddle Lewin's weapon to show him what he was doing wrong. And that was his second mistake. Lewin still hadn't gotten the safety on, and the rifle finally went off. Shall I say, startling Sergeant Oshji? The sergeant reacted rather violently and took Lewin out of the firing line. The next day, all the paperwork was cut to throw Lewin out of the army for the good of the service. But Lewin wasn't pleased to get out. He wanted to fight. He believed in what we were doing in the Nam. The whole country is burning their draft cards, and this misfit wants to fight. The whole country is burning their draft cards, and this misfit kid wants to fight. Maybe there was some hope yet. And I decided a couple of things. First, I'd do my best to make these new troops the best that they could be. Second, that someone who understood what it's really like in the Namas that had to tell its story. And being as I didn't know anyone else who fits the bill, I guess I'm going to have to go back to college and become that one. 
Rob's reading the letter is interrupted by an explosion, and Clark yells out, There they are! as several VC soldiers make their way toward the bunker. Rob readies a grenade while Clark starts firing, and they both pour it on until an artillery shell lands near the bunker and collapses on top of them. They dig themselves out, and Rob asks Clark if he's okay, but before Clark can respond, he yells, Rob, look out! A VC walks up behind Rob with a rifle, but is shot down by Sarge, who shows up just in the nick of time. Sarge notes that the last mortar round didn't hit the bunker, but the concussion more than likely caused the cave-in. Rob says he owes him one, and Sarge replies that he's not keeping score before telling the guys to get back to the hooch. Rob makes a note that he lost his letter from Ed and says, oh well. And the last panel shows the end of Ed's letter peeking out from under a pile of rubble. It says, keep the faith, Rob, and I'll try to do the same here. Best from your friend, Ed Marks. This is the first glimpse we get of the home front, which I think is, was inevitable, because when you talk about the Vietnam War, the home front is nearly inseparable in our collective conscience, especially in 1967, because we're nearing what became to be known as the Summer of Love, and if you look at the counterculture and the group we came to know as hippies, 1967 is when things really start to kick into high gear. And while it has its ups and downs, it all goes, it goes all the way until about the end of 1970 probably into the early 70s, but 67 and 70 is kind of the key years of this, what we call the 60s counterculture and the anti-war protest movement. It's really tough not to get political as a result of doing an issue about the home front during the war. When you're in the middle of the action of the war, you can show it for what it was. You don't really have to get into the feeling whether or not we should have been there or whether or not what we were doing was right. Sure, you can do that, but for the most part, I thought Murray was been able to avoid it for the better part of the 14 issues I've covered. But going home can be tougher than walking across a minefield when telling the story. Ed Marks is a great narrator for it because, once again, he's our avatar. He's the guy we first experienced the war through, and to be honest, the guy I think that we all felt the most attached to during those first 13 issues of the series. Having him write a letter to Rob and using the letter to tell the main story of the issue is also a clever way to do a story like this without abandoning the quote-unquote real-time aspect of the narrative. Plus, it helps drive home the point that the lives of the characters of the comic are ongoing. Had Murray ended the series, or at least ended Marx's entire story with issue 13 and Ed's leaving the war behind, it would have been a nice ending, and the audience would have walked away satisfied. However, as appropriate as that ending would have been, we as an audience would have been cheated out of the, one of the major parts of the Vietnam War vet's story, which is what happened when you came home. I find it as funny as Ed does that he's been made a drill instructor, although I think it's a good illustration of how even though his time in Vietnam was up, his time in the Army wasn't necessarily over. But that's not the biggest part of this. It's how he feels being home especially how the rest of society seems to be seeing things. On page 5, there's a shot of McCord Air Force Base with a welcome home banner draped over a building, but nothing beyond that. Ed is basically processed through after deboarding the plane and surprised and maybe a little offended at the fact that this is so, well, impersonal. I didn't know if there was a great fanfare for troops returning home from other wars, but it does make sense in the context of both the war and Ed's character because he's still a naive kid who would think that there'd be a huge welcome home for him when he got home instead of just paperwork and drug searching. 
But we do see Ed's parents. We do get Ed at home, and this is where Murray could get very, really, really political, and he avoids it for the most part. Instead, he does his best to stay objective as a writer. He simply tries to show the politics of the home front through the eyes of the soldier who has returned. By the time Ed returned home in 1967, the anti-war movement had been growing, and some of the images in the media were grisly. Weapons such as napalm were widely used during the war and did become controversial. There's a famous picture of a young girl, Fan T. Kim Fook, naked and burning from a napalm attack that was taken by Associated Press photographer Nick Ut, although that was taken in 72, not 67. But that doesn't mean there weren't controversies surrounding the use of napalm and other weapons prior to 1972. Ed's disbelief is understandable because of his perspective. He has seen how the use of napalm has helped the soldiers in the war effort, and he has seen what he and his fellow GIs have gone through, but he has not seen what's been going on stateside. And I like that Ed's father is sympathetic when he tries to explain the protest movement instead of, like, chiding his son or trying to armchair quarterback the war. The sections where Ed sees his old friends as well as his high school girlfriend are funny, and poignant, because it seems that he really can't connect or relate to the guys he goes to the bar with. And his old high school girlfriend, well, she's got a baby? It's not married either, so that suggests that she got knocked up while Ed was away at war, and well, let's just say it's a little awkward. Ed's reaction to the news, the nightly news, and we get a nice uh, rendering of Walter Cronkite, is expected, mainly because of the different perspective that he has, but also because even back in the 1960s, our media was reliant on the violent image as well as the soundbite. No, you rarely, if ever, get the full story when you watch the evening news, and I can see why he gets upset. But Murray doesn't dwell on this. He doesn't point an accusatory finger at the media. He moves on to showing us how soldiers are coping and how Marx's role is working as a drill instructor. And, well, it seems that by the end, Ed isn't necessarily a bloodthirsty hawk, but he does believe in what he is doing as a part of the United States Army. I don't see this as Murray trying to take a side per se. Mostly I see it as him further developing Ed Marks as a character, and then setting him aside for later, in a way so that if we want to see other aspects of the military during the war, especially since Ed has now decided that he is going to be a writer and a storyteller about the war in Vietnam, which later on down the line he will be. The art, by the way, is pretty solid in the issue. Uh, I like Wayne Van Zant, although he, since he did breakdowns, this is mostly Jeff Isherwood. Uh, and even though it's more straightforward than the work Golden had been doing, Isherwood's art is tight. It has a nice amount of detail and expresses the characters' emotions very well, especially those of Ed Marks, who in real life probably would have been one of the had one of the worst poker faces ever. But the writing in this issue is really, uh, really needs good artwork to support it, since the entire section of uh, Ed's letter is just caption boxes. So it's kind of a silent story, even though since there's like no dialogue. And Van Zant and Isherwood give what is a well-written story the uh, the images that it deserves. I'm going to take a break, and I'll come back with historical context, letters, and ads. You like cheap comic books, right? Well, I'm Professor Allen, and I talk about cheap comic books on the Quarterbin Podcast. In every episode, I'll dissect a single comic from my collection, as long as I paid no more than 25 cents for the issue. 
Forget about $4 new comics that you can read in 4 minutes, or crossover events that can cost 100 bucks to collect. Join me in the quarter bin, where even bad comics are a bargain, and good ones are a steal. The Quarterbin Podcast is part of the Relatively Geeky Podcast Network. Visit us at relativelygeekypodcast.blogspot.com or search Relatively Geeky or Quarterbin Podcast in iTunes. I guarantee it'll be worth every penny. So before I get to the general historical context surrounding this issue, I have a couple of specific items. First is not necessarily a historical fact, but a film recommendation. In 1987, which was soon after Platoon uh, hit theaters and around the time of Full Metal Jacket, HBO ran a documentary entitled Dear America, Letters Home from Vietnam, which was accompanied by a book of the same name. There isn't enough for me to say that would result in an entire episode devoted to the film, so I figured I'd drop it here because this particular issue does have the feel of it, albeit inversely. (laughs) The film is is a chronological recount of the United States' involvement in the war, as told by actual letters written home from soldiers, letters that are read by famous people, including many of whom had been in Vietnam movies that were making big box office money at the time. The voiceovers are done over real footage in home movies, and this truly accomplishes what Doug Murray, Tim O'Brien, and others go for, which is try to tell the war and the soldier's experience for what it is. The film is available for DVD rental on Netflix, as is the sequel, uh, Last Letters Home, which the same director, Bill Couturi, created during the Iraq War. The other item is something that Ed mentions in his letter, is a boat named the Phoenix that seemed to be helping Charlie. The boat in question is a boat that was known as the Phoenix of Hiroshima and which was built by an anthropologist named Dr. Earl L. Reynolds. His mission was to sail the boat around the world as a protest, inspired by his study of the effects of the atomic bombing of Hiroshima. The Phoenix circumnavigated the globe from 1954 to 1958 and made several other voyages until its official retirement in 2007. In 1967, the Phoenix did visit North Vietnam. The purpose was to deliver medical supplies to civilians injured in bombings, providing supplies to the Red Cross and Hanoi, Haiphong, and outlying villages. The whole mission was covered in a CBC documentary called Voyage of the Phoenix. Now, a little more general here. April 6, 1967, Quang Tri-City is attacked by 2,500 VC and NVA. On April 14th, President Nixon visits Saigon and says that anti-war protests in the United States are prolonging the war. And the next day, there is an anti-war demonstration in New York and San Francisco that uh, overall involves nearly 200,000 people. The Reverend Martin Luther King Jr. declares, quote, the pursuit of this widened war has narrowed the promised dimensions of the domestic welfare programs, making the poor white Negro bear the heaviest burdens both at the front and at home. On April 20th, U.S. bombers targeted Haiphong Harbor for the first time. April 24th, a large campaign at Khe Sanh, which would last until May 11th, started. And finally, on April 28th, Muhammad Ali, heavyweight champion of the world, refused military service. He was stripped of his boxing title and suspended from fighting for three years. Incoming this time around, we have a couple of letters. Catherine Smith talks about how she lost several friends out there, sweated out that her husband, ex-husband and only brother were in uh, the Tet Offensive, and it was very, very hard uh, being on the home front, uh, terrified that her husband was in a body bag, and was wondering about 
would they do an issue uh, about families at home? And she's and, and they say, yeah, this is our first look back at the home front. Hope you like it. If enough readers do, we'll do some more. PFC George Watkins in Campbell, Kentucky, uh, says he recently purchased the NOM in issue 11 of the PX. Uh, my congratulations on the story and the artwork. He's a soldier assigned to the 101st Airborne Division and who's very proud to be in that division. He says, How, however, can you explain to me why people roll up their windows and lock their doors when they see me in dress uniform? Have I been shunned from society for joining the army? If I should ever go to war, I don't want to fight for a country who don't even trust their own army. P.S. Why the 25th Infantry. Dear George, don't worry about anyone who rolls up the windows. They'll be the first to scream about where their army is if a war does break out. Unfortunately, in a country the size and variety of ours, there will always be those who do not realize the necessity of the armed forces. As for the 25th Infantry, we chose it because of the location throughout the war and because it wasn't a quote-unquote glory outfit like the 101st or the 1st Air Cav. PFC Ramon Flores III says... I was wondering if you'd ever make the nom into a movie. It'd be the best, better than Platoon or Full Metal Jacket. They're like, only time would tell. And the last the last um, one is from John A. Killinger. Dear Nom Brothers, hope all is well with you and yours. First of all, congratulations on your Bravo Award. It could not happen to a better comic. Second is a letter to you all. I wrote the first time when Mike died. I was moved... In the way that you handled his death, this letter is regard to number 12, Ed's letter home. Once again, you hit an area that is close to me. As you know, mail was our only real touch with the world. Letters home were often were the only good thing that ever happened to me. When my mom wrote, I got all the news, good and bad. It was funny. Even bad news was good to receive over there. I, too, had trouble writing home, so much of what I saw and did I could not write about because I didn't want to shock or worry the family. Also, the green machine had certain rules about what you could and could not write. As you can see, I don't write so good even now, so I'll end it there. I know you get lots of mail, but could you let me know you got my letters? Peace, health, and happiness always. Dear John, we got your letters. Thanks the best to you, your brother. Um, and they talk about, finally, the America Cares campaign that invites Americans to send letters, cards, cookies etc to our boys overseas and uh it says write to them help the troops out in a way they'll always appreciate and i'm not sure if that still exists i was trying to figure it out but i couldn't seem to find it but that's it for letters nom notes okay readers here's the lowdown on the odd ones this issue cadre the core group of NCOs who are used in training outfits everywhere, you should call them you could call them the teaching staff. Charlie's the VC, the enemy, drill instructor or DI, the guy who gets you through basic training, the sergeant or corporal who is in command of training platoons. First short, the first sergeant, the top sergeant. Hooch, your hut, your barracks. Ice, kill or shoot. McCord, McCord Air Force Base, along with Oakland, the facility most Vietnam troops and returnees went through. Pushing troops, training troops, pushing them through training. Adds this issue. M&M's is now marching in a parade. Chocolate fun for everyone. Uh, the, this guy is still getting action because he's building NPC models. Don't just stand there, fire back. Uh, Captain Power and the Soldiers of the Future. And this is a game of some sort? And you put Captain Power inside the Powerjet XT7 and fire... Invisible beams that enemy targets on his TV score show and score or be hit. It's not a test. The TV show will fire back. Interesting. I don't remember this. 
I honestly don't remember this. There's the Marvel tryout book again. The same Konami ad from last time around. A uh, American Comics ad which says hot comics new comics are highly recommended prices rising we have adventurers which is hot fantasy adventure team book D- team book D type characters lots of action highly recommended elf warrior is hot ninja El- elite is hot star rangers hot i don't remember any of these books gi <laughs> joe's still going strong Nam is blazing hot. I mean, and and uh, the first issue of the Nam and the first printing is going for fifteen dollars. Second printing, uh, two and three are going for seven apiece. X Men, we've still got X Men issues going up in the thirty to thirty-five dollar range. The uh, the Dark Phoenix Saga is largely going in the ten to twelve dollars per issue range. The Fall of the Mutants is blisteringly hot. And that is uh, all going for 99 cents, although I think this was out around the time of the Fall of the Mutants. And uh, they, this is something they, they used to do a lot, and I never actually took advantage of this. The Grab Bag, 18 valuable comics, 20 valuable comics, 29, and there's like for $5, $9, $7, and they also want comics. So, uh, and they, they would send a large illustrated catalog. I used to order from them back in the mid-1990s, but I love the fact that I get to talk about the American comics ads. Of course, we're not up to the, the, the real, like, late 80s, early 90s. We'll get to that toward the end of the series. Bullpen Bulletins this time around is a profile on Bob Bediansky, who is the editor on Air Raiders, Visionaries, Willow, Avira, and Pinocchio and the Emperor of the Night movie adaptations. I didn't know there was a movie called Pinocchio and the Emperor of the Night. And then Marvel Press Posters, Toy Company, Storyline Development, and there's a typical caricature. We have items in the bulletin bulletins. Uh, Each week we get thousands of requests for an official Marvel fan club. I guess they got rid of one uh, years ago. They say they've been... Because they had one, I think, years before this, but I guess times change. They say they're putting one together, a nifty club for their frantic fans and they're having a naming contest so you can name the club Uh, in case you haven't already guessed, we're all proud of writer Doug Murray, not only has he made the NOM one of the most interesting comics produced today, but he also won the Veterans Achievement for Entertainment Award from Bravo the Brotherhood Rally of American Veterans Organization Doug's work was chosen over some pretty heavy competition like the movie Platoon. Way to go, Doug. They said that they have uh, Mobius' graphic novel was just released. And down in the checklist, Fall of the Mutants is going on. We've got a double-sized New Mutants 60. Soul Adventures is, um, which I believe become an Avengers Spotlight at one point. Two stories for the price of one. Uh, let's see. Hulk fights Wolverine in Incredible Hulk 340. What's There's nothing really new there. The Uncanny X-Men is a double-sized issue. Uh, classic X-Men still rolling around, and, and X-Factor 25 is the double-sized issue that's been two years in the making, which I believe is part of the, um, because of the fall of the mutants, is Archangel be- Angel becoming Archangel uh, as a result of that storyline. That's the one thing that I remember really coming out of out of this whole, this whole uh, big storyline, aside from the fact that the X-Men faked their deaths at the end. Marvel's Supermarket Comic Convention 
ad and the subscription sale with Spider-Man stocking hung by the chimney because it is later in the year. Striped Chips Ahoy has a word scramble. And on the back is Take Command and Crin, the Dragonlance Adventures hardback uh, for AD&D. And that's about it for this time around in the NOM. Now that you've made it all the way through here, go over to the Quarter Bin Podcast, the Relatively Geeky Network of Podcasts, and download the latest episode. Professor Allen is going to take you through his his thoughts on the NOM number 15 and decide whether or not it was worth the 25 cents he paid for it. Next time around, I'll be back with issue 16 of the NOM which furthers the story of the boys in the war, especially some serious developments in that of Jerry Ramnerine. And until then, thank you for listening. What a field day for the heat A thousand people in the street Singing songs You have been listening to In Country, a podcast that covers Marvel Comics' The Nom. The Nom and all of the comics associated with it are copyright Marvel Comics, and as this podcast is intended for entertainment purposes, and I make no money off of it, no infringement is intended. Images, clips, and show notes can be found at Pop Culture Affidavit, which you can find at popcultureaffidavit.com. Feedback can be sent to popcultureaffidavit at gmail.com and may likely be read on the air as I occasionally do email-centric episodes or segments. Thank you for listening and come back in two weeks for the next chapter in the saga of The Nom. Hey, what's that sound? Everybody look what's going on.